Hello and welcome back to our discussion of the Pentateuch. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's dispense with the introductory stuff. I think we've covered enough about hermeneutics, at least for the time being, uh, and jump right in. Last time we were focusing specifically on the story of the uh, fall and the creation of the world in Genesis 1-3. to um, When last we left off, we were emphasizing that God had created a perfectly good world that he was very happy with and that he had even called very good. Uh, just in time to watch humans really screw it up, pretty royally. Um, Adam and Eve's fall very much ushered sin into the world and ushered death into the world, as we will see from the passages directly after this. Um, and we are sort of being introduced to a new phase of the story, now that the world has been irrevocably corrupted in some way by this act of disobedience. We are going to see God try and restore it to the original order. Now, the two passages that we're looking about at today, I do kind of consider separate. Uh, we have the antediluvian period, like everything in Genesis that leads up to the flood and everything that leads up to the story of Abraham, and then the story of Abraham itself. Um, originally, I thought I might handle this in two separate lectures, but the fact of the matter is that as fascinating as some of the stories of the antediluvian period are, there's not all that much to say about them, or at least not enough that I thought would make a full lecture. Um, however, the stuff about Abraham would probably be an entire, you know, two-hour lecture in its own right. So we are just going to cram them together and hope for the best. Um, hopefully it won't be too terribly much, and hopefully we won't end up doing another two-and-a-half-hour lecture, though for all I know we'll end up doing three this time. Uh, apologies. Again, I never know how long these are going to take when I start recording them. Um... But let's go ahead and jump in. Genesis 3 was the fall, now we hit Genesis 4, and we are introduced to new characters. Hooray! Uh, specifically, we have two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Um, we are told that they both get married pretty early on in this story, in which case we might wonder where exactly those wives came from. Obviously, the writer is not terribly interested in this. Um, neither should we be, I suppose. Um... It is worth noting, though, that there has, hasn't has been a whole lot of discussion of exactly what Adam and Eve have been up to in the intervening period. As much as Cain and Abel are sort of presented here as though they are the first children of Adam and Eve, um, and Eve even has that one line after, like, Seth is born, where she's like, ah, now I have Seth, and it will replace Abel, who died. Um, we might be led to think that these are the only two kids, and that, like, we literally get as far as four people in the world before they start killing each other off. Um, which, you know, is pretty grim and not necessarily in any way inaccurate to our experiences. Um, but it does seem like the, the story isn't really that interested in, in the entire population at this point. This is just a story that is interesting about the direct descendants of Adam and Eve. Um, there could very well be many, many sons and daughters at this point. We are not given any real indication to think that, like, this is really the first time that they have had kids, even though this is the first time that, you know, it is described in the text. Like, Genesis 4 literally starts off, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Um, 
this could very well be an indication that Cain is the firstborn. This could very well not indicate that at all. The text is clearly not interested in that. Um, and we should emphasize that. Like, we should be looking at what the text is interested in. Again, this is the sort of hermeneutic framework that I've been adopting this entire time. Where it is silent, I am willing to let it be silent. The fact that we may have questions about it reflects our interests rather than what the text has to say. Um, we might very well wonder if other, you know, if, if people reading this at the time had those same questions, but at any rate, they are probably as frustrated as we are if they do have them. Um, again, what seems more interesting here is that we have this story as being connected to Adam and Eve and the, the greater lineage. Um, if we were to put on my mythology hat, I would probably look at this and say this is probably a completely different story from a completely different tradition that fits into the greater narrative here and so is incorporated here. Again, not saying that we've got like some kind of documentary hypothesis division going on here, but rather if in fact we are looking at many oral traditions sort of being recorded for the first time here in Genesis, they might not always fit together quite so smoothly. Uh, that said, this will get more complicated as we look at what the, the text has to offer in the future. Um, for now, the, the story here of Cain and Abel is pretty darn straightforward. We've got Cain, we've got Abel. They both have wives for some reason, don't ask questions. Um, both apparently present sacrifices to God. Cain is a farmer, and he presents, you know, grain and fruit and things like that. Abel is a herdsman and therefore presents, like, an animal, sacrifices an animal. Um, and apparently, whatever happens here, God likes Abel's sacrifice way more than Cain's. Um, we get this this line uh, in Genesis 4, 4, and 5. Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And he kills his brother out of jealousy. Um, now, this whole... The reasoning here has been reinterpreted a few times. Like, I think it's later in Hebrews or, or one of the New Testament epistles um, that we are told that Cain was disfavored because he did not have his heart right. Like, he was unfaithful in his his presentation. Um, there doesn't seem to be any indication in the text that this is, that this is the case. Um... One of the other interpretations that I've seen bandied about, uh, Daniel Quinn's Ishmael especially, like, remarks that, oh, this is actually, you know, a, a subtextual criticism of, uh, like, agriculture. That, you know, farmers and the, the sort of city building that, that agriculture kind of enables is, is actually being severely criticized here um, as a sort of unnatural way of life. That's fascinating and, you know, interesting to sort of explore and consider, but certainly, again, isn't really supported by the text here. As much as it is notable that, like, notable to the point that the text points out that Cain's offering is from the ground, the fruit of the ground, as opposed to Abel's offering, which is an animal, like, this is the only thing we necessarily have to go on to judge why God doesn't like Cain's offering so much without that speculation offered by the New Testament. Um, but it's still a pretty weak ground to go on. Um, we could just as easily read this passage as a sort of arbitrariness on the part of God. 
Um, at the very least, we're going to see many examples going forward of God favoring the younger born brother over the firstborn, who is traditionally the one who receives all the honor and glory and blessing. Um, but again, the reasoning here is not clear. What is clear, though, is that Cain's response is an obvious overreaction. Um, there is no reason for Cain to be mad at Abel over the sacrifice. Whatever Abel did, Abel did right. Whatever Cain did, Cain apparently did wrong. Um, and I tend to think that the, the judgment here should be on Cain. Like, dude, check yourself, not your brother, for why exactly God is, is you know, displeased with you. But again, the story here is, is so fragmentary, like we get so little detail, that it is really hard to judge. I mean, as much as we get those two lines that basically describe what the kind of sacrifices were and that God didn't like them, and that's it, it is worth noting that there is a much greater emphasis on the aftermath. Um, like Cain kills Abel, God comes to Cain and is like, hey, where is your brother? And we get that famous line, am I my brother's keeper? Um, Lord condemn, or God condemns Cain for this, like the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Um, and we get some punishments. Again, when thou tellest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. But then Cable, Cain, or Cable, uh, then Cain pleads for mercy. Um, he specifically says, like, people are going to come after me. If I am, in fact, a, a fugitive, you know, somebody will want to kill me when they find me. And God, interestingly, protects him. We get the mark of Cain that God puts on Cain. Cain is now a criminal, like notably, markedly a criminal. But the mark is not to sort of shame him or condemn him. It is to protect him. Um, note the, the statement here. Uh, the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Um, and this is repeated. Like, nobody ever talks about Lamech for whatever reason, presumably because the story isn't nearly as exciting and we don't even get any details on what the circumstances of the murder actually were. Um, but Lamech is apparently one of the descendants of Cain, and he apparently commits a similar crime of murder, um, possibly two of them, depending on how you interpret the passage going on. Um... And once again, he laments that if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Um, although we don't get a similar passage where God protects him. Um, what seems to be clear here is that on the one hand, violence begets violence. That's extremely clear. Um, Cain is terrified that by killing Abel, he will, you know, be killed himself, that vengeance will follow. Um, and we get another very clear sort of statement here on the part of God that he's going to stop this, the whole violent cycle in its tracks. That, you know, if somebody does in fact kill Cain, God will kill the killer sevenfold. Like he and his entire family will be destroyed. 
Um, and if anything, the mark on Cain, as much as it seems to be here to protect Cain, also the way the text describes it seems to be here to protect anyone who might find and kill him. Like, don't kill this guy or something really awful will happen to you. You and your entire family will be wiped out. Um, so on the one hand, we're definitely introduced to these, you know, cycles of violence, something that is very common in a lot of mythological texts and a lot of the ancient world is very conscious of this. You know, at the end of the day, like if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey start to finish as part of like a greater Homeric epic, it very much reads as a cycle of violence that finally comes to an end only with the, you know, inter the intervention of divine authority. Um, clearly this is something that the ancient world is very familiar with. Um, and the story of Cain and Abel seems to suggest more than anything else that God is going to stop the cycle of violence with a level of violence that nobody else can reckon with because God is the biggest dude in the playground, so to speak. Um, he can definitely pick on anyone and can do so without any, uh, threat of reciprocation. Um... So as much as we might ask questions about what is the mark of Cain and, you know, what is the deal with between Cain and Abel and their various sacrifices, again, the obvious sort of message here, what the text is very clearly emphasizing is instead about violence and the way that violence works. Um, God is very interested in stopping these cycles of vengeance and violence, even if it is, it means protecting someone who is themselves guilty of a crime. It is really weird to think that, you know, Cain kills Abel and God's response is to protect Cain. But nonetheless, it seems pretty logical that God's interest here is in preventing violence before it starts. Now that this has happened, now that this new element of violence has entered the world, now that the fall has extended not just to, you know, the natural death that each person is subject to, but to people killing each other, God takes some pretty dramatic steps to prevent that from getting out of hand. Um, the next chapter is also similarly interesting. Like, chapter 5 of Genesis is our first genealogy, the first of many genealogies we will be encountering in the Pentateuch. Um, and this itself brings up some really interesting questions here. Um, first and foremost, this is a new wrinkle in our ability to sort of contextualize these texts and understand what their purpose is. Um, you'll note that the, the, that chapter five does start with like a pretty major interjection. Uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Like once again, we are sort of stopping the narrative short and starting from scratch again like as much as it's only two verses we do get these two verses that sort of recapitulate a lot of what happened in genesis 1 and 2 um we are sort of once again we are sort of presented with another textual tradition a new story component entering the text um we are sort of inclined to throw out a lot of what has come before like, as much as this is, at the end of the day, a coherent series of stories that tell an overarching narrative of God and his relation to human beings, we should also note that each of these stories is also something discreet. 
Um, we have the story of creation in Genesis one as a sort of discrete story from what we are said, what we are told about the creation in Genesis two. The Genesis three certainly follows on Genesis two, but tells its own distinct story with its own sort of arc and, and narrative. Um, Genesis four with Cain and Abel it seems to come very much out of left field and connects only like a little bit to the characters in the overarching story that we've seen before. Like God's interactions with Cain and Abel seem to be utterly independent of everything that has gone on with Adam and Eve. And now here in Genesis 5, we have this genealogy coming out of nowhere, forming a very distinct kind of narrative that almost certainly relies upon the earlier texts. Like its whole focus is on the characters we've already been introduced to, but does indicate a sort of different storytelling tradition, certainly a different set of focus. Um, what is notable, though, is that it is a genealogy. It is trying to trace the, inherit the inheritance of Adam and Eve all the way to the further generations that we're going to be seeing in later parts of the story. In some sense, these genealogies are a sort of narrative connective tissue. Like, why are we going to jump directly from the story of Cain and Abel to the story of Noah and the Flood? Well, here is a genealogy that shows how Noah relates directly to Seth and to Adam and Eve by uh, extension. Um, we should also note, though, that by providing a genealogy, by specifically emphasizing, like, the age of each person uh, in this sort of genealogical track... We are giving a level of historical fidelity to this story that we haven't seen so far. Um, as much as, like, we can, you know, we can recognize that the author clearly wants us to believe that Adam and Eve were real people, that they did in fact have, you know, this, this fall from grace, that Cain and Abel were real people, and that they, you know, have this other complicated relationship with God. Um, the genealogies suggest that not only were these people, you know, people, but placing them historically. Like, these are not just mythical figures in the sense of, you know, some kind of, like, uh, demigod like Gilgamesh. No, they are placed in history. They belong to a greater genealogical tradition. Um, and this too is common in mythology. Like, just because it is, you know, a genealogy, like, as much as I'm talking it up as though there is this sort of location in history, we should notice that, you know, for most of the Greek myths, genealogies are also extremely important and significant. Um, like, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, they are all interested in these genealogies. They want to place their mythological figures in a historical context. Um, so this is not terribly unusual for a mythological tradition. The question then becomes, like, is this verisimilitude, like a rhetorical strategy used to make these characters, which may or may not have existed, more believable? Um, or as we are seeing here, because there is a very dedicated effort throughout the Old Testament, like we encounter something like three genealogies over the course of just this passage that we've read for today, um, there does seem to be a concerted effort, especially in the Old Testament, to provide a single genealogical lineage from Adam to literally every character we're going to encounter. Like it's not 
abundantly clear. We are going to miss a genealogy between Joseph and Moses, one that is sort of like retroactively introduced in, in the New Testament. So the tradition is there. It's just, you know, not recorded as an important part of the Old Testament narrative structure. Um, but it is worth noting that the lines between what is very distant in the past and what is, you know, directly connected to the present are blurry. Like... Again, the context, the contextualization here suggests that Adam and Eve were real people in the minds of the people reading this text, that they were only a certain number of generations removed. Um, so we should probably think the same. Like, as much as Genesis 1 is in its own category because you can't connect it with this kind of genealogy, whatever God was doing in Genesis 1 is almost certainly outside of the historical boundaries that this text is trying to outline here. Um, nonetheless, Genesis 2 through 5 would suggest that they are connected to the rest of the text in some very obvious genealogical ways. Um... This is complicated, though, by the fact that everyone is living so dang long at this point. Um, you'll notice that all of the names listed in this genealogy, the descendants of Adam, tend to live roughly around 900 years on average. Um, there are a few people who are significantly less than 900 years, usually somewhere in the 850s or so. Um, but nonetheless, they're all living an extremely long time. Um, and frequently my students, if they in fact encounter these genealogies, I usually don't make them read them, but nonetheless, you know, word gets around, they'll usually ask, what is it, what is up with Methuselah living 960 some years? Um, to which I usually answer my best guess, at least from the, the, like, um, evidence that the text provides is that we are still enjoying the benefits of the, uh, tree of life in some way, um. Like, this is something that, that uh, C.S. Lewis brings up in Paralandra, which is one of my all-time favorite, like, novels, period, much less C.S. Lewis fantasy novels. Um, in there, he suggests that, like, once you have taken from the Tree of Life, it is really dang hard to kill you. Um, and that seems to be what's suggested here in the text as well. Like, each series of genealogies we encounter will be progressively shorter in scope, like, we're not going to see 900-year-old dudes after this genealogy. Um, even the descendants of Noah tend to top out around, like, 650 to 700 years old. So, clearly, with every major catastrophe, with every major change in the world at this point, there is a similar effect on lifespan. Um, we, as we get farther and farther from the Garden of Eden, we are getting farther and farther from this kind of extreme lifespan lifespan uh length um now later once we get to like the descendants of of abraham and company god's gonna literally say all right we're gonna we're gonna start cutting this off like there, there's going to be a deliberate act on the part of god saying all right we're not gonna let these you know 900 year old dudes run around anymore um and we are going to get closer and closer to a lifespan that is more uh is more comparable to our own um, like, as much as we are told here that, you know, Adam and Eve are apparently giving birth to their sons when they're like 150 years old or something, um, by the time that Abraham's story is, is well underway, he's going to say things like, hey, I'm 90, there's no way I'm having kids anymore. Um, he will, he's wrong, but nonetheless, it's a great outlier, it seems. Um, 
we are getting, again, people who are living to 150 years old, which is remarkable by contemporary standards, but this is not remarkable by the standards of Methuselah at 960-some. What further complicates the matter, though, is that some of these people are apparently living to see the flood. Uh, like, if you do the math on this one, as much as Noah is, like, 600 years old when the flood drops, um, that does mean that Methuselah, at the very least, should be, still be around uh, by the time that Noah is doing this. And while, you know, like, it's unclear exactly who is alive and who is not at this point, like, the numbers are complicated, but they do, in fact, add up. It does seem like Adam would probably have been dead by now, but some of his descendants may still be bumming around on the earth, and whether or not they get saved or not in the Great Flood is ambiguous, to say the least. Um, what we should emphasize, though, because the text definitely emphasizes, like, we might read into the math and wonder, you know, who's alive during the Flood or not. Clearly the text does not care. Um, the text does very much care and emphasize that every one of these people, with one exception, dies. Like, we've been told that the Garden of Eden, you know, when human beings fell from grace, that they would die. Like, God said, don't eat from that tree or you will die. The serpent said, you will not die and was very much lying. And then God's like, well, now that you have eaten from it, you will in fact die. But it doesn't happen on the day. Like, we might wonder about this. Like, weren't they supposed to die? What happens? Um, note that in this genealogy, we have a very clear pattern. Um, so Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Every other person that we're talking about here, you know, Adam, Seth, Enos, Kynan, you know, etc. They all have this similar pattern. They live so many years, beget the next person we're going to talk about. They live a whole bunch of years after that, and then they die. The genealogy emphasizes the death of every single one of them. Again, with the exception of, weirdly, Enoch. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine on this one. Enoch apparently doesn't die. He just gets, like prematurely zapped up to heaven question mark like there's clearly no frame of reference for this besides the fact that it is noteworthy that he doesn't die because everybody else it is emphasized that he does enoch is just weird that way like again if you're looking for an interpretation here i am fresh out um it is noted by Jewish scholars and, and sort of like, I'm sure that there's a rich mythology of Enoch. Like, for that matter, there's even the apocryphal book of Enoch supposedly written by him. It's messy. Again, I don't want to get into it. From the sort of canonical Old Testament perspective, this is definitely an outlier and an unexplained one at that. It is a mystery. Um, and it is all the more mysterious because it is left unexplained. Um, I don't know why. 
Enoch is is sort of singled out here. Why why his story is left so open ended? Like we don't get any more details about what's so interesting about him or why he gets this special treatment. But whatever reason, he doesn't die. Everybody else does. Enoch does not. And as a consequence, he and Elijah will be the two characters in the entire Jewish tradition who have this the uh, dignity of not dying. Actually. Um, Elijah also very famously gets like his flaming chariot that takes him up to be with God for some reason. Um, and consequently, like in Jewish, uh, I know in some Jewish traditions and like in Daniel and elsewhere, especially in Revelation, it's mentioned that it's going to be Elijah who comes back to like get people and, and, you know, usher in the new age of God's like res residence on earth. Um, frequently he is accompanied by Enoch in these stories, in these kind of prophecies and visions of the future. Again, I don't know enough about this stuff to weigh in. I just know that it's a thing. Um, Enoch's fascinating if you dig into like the deep lore surrounding him but again all of that is after this Old Testament passage and therefore kind of not relevant to our discussion um, he's interesting but that's kind of all I've got to say about it um, so with that in mind let's go ahead to Noah now that he is sort of the next character who is going to have some actual stories surrounding him instead of just noting that he lived for a long time had kids and then you know kicked off um first off we should probably take a fairly close look at genesis 6 like i promised we were going to look at the weird stuff in this series and enoch definitely qualifies as weird stuff uh the opening to genesis 6 also definitely qualifies as weird stuff um, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh yet his days shall be in 120 years. No more of this 960 year stuff. 120 years, that's going to be the hard cutoff, I guess. But this is not going to be grandfathered in. Like, it's going to gradually work its way there. We'll see that in the next genealogy. Um, 6-4, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So, we've apparently got sons of god hanging out with daughters of men having babies that are maybe giants or something and they're like maybe demigods of some kind yeah there's a lot of question about what's exactly being described and going on here because on the one hand we're getting some pretty weird references to something that we do not understand and clearly does not have any contemporary parallel question mark um, the, the term that's usually used here to describe what's going on is the Nephilim. That's like the, the Jewish or the Hebrew term that is referring to either the giants or the sons of, of God. I forget which actually. Um, 
but it does sort of not ever get addressed again. Like, we don't actually run across the Nephilim or the Sons of God or, you know, the Giants in later passages, presumably because they are at least part of what God is wiping off the face of the earth with the giant flood that's about to happen. Um, it is noteworthy, though, that, like, this is on the one hand just sort of separate from God's declaration that, hey, you know, humans have become super crazy wicked and we're not going to we're not going to deal with this anymore. So we're just going to, like, kill everything. Um, this seems to be, you know, slightly connected to the foregoing passages. Like, we're, we're not seeing God say, you know, specifically, I will wipe out the sons of God or I will wipe out this abominable race of, you know, half divine half angelic whatever is happening here beings like notice that instead god's limiting his focus when he in fact declares what he's go out to destroy to humans creeping things and stuff that you know we have seen before um there is no indication that like god is specifically out to target the weird stuff that is being generated in this particular strange age um, so again, like, there's very little in the way of textual context or, or support here, but you better believe that there are a whole bunch of wild poetic traditions about what exactly is happening. Um, on the one hand, many would argue that the sons of God being referred to are angels, um, and that therefore we're getting some, like, demonic slash angelic interaction with humans, um, and thus getting a race of, like, half-angelic, half-human beings of some kind um if you tie this to what we discussed before where like the serpent is actually satan the fallen angel and the whole you know tradition of lucifer and like his angels rebelling against god and being cast into hell and maybe escaping to earth like it's fairly easy to interpret that passage as hey the angels showed up and they're starting to have intercourse with humans like both in the metaphorical and in the literal and carnal sense um, and that therefore this is what God is out to destroy, like the world has become too evil due to the corrupting influence of, of Lucifer and company. Like, yeah, this is a great systematic theology reading. It answers most of the questions and successfully ties it to other passages elsewhere. Um, but we should note that it is after the fact. Like, as far as the text itself here is concerned, assuming that, you know, this passage in Genesis... Uh, was written before the likes of Isaiah or Jude or or any of the apocryphal texts, um, it's fairly obvious that our narrator just doesn't give us any details. Like, this is apparently an allusion to something we already are supposed to know about. Um, like, the sons of God are, you know, not noteworthy, part of some other oral tradition or storytelling tradition. Um, or alternatively, that, you know, they are just sort of here for flavor and we're not given any explanation because, you know, it makes it more mysterious that way. Um, who's to say, really? Like, again, the Nephilim don't seem to be terribly relevant to our story here. Obviously, you know, we get, like, three verses about sons of God and giants. We get, you know, three chapters on the flood that transpires afterwards. Um, and again, the flood seems to be justified pretty well by Noah saying, you know, humans are evil, full stop, no need to explain beyond that. Um... We should note that, like, throughout this entire discussion, especially through the gene genealogy and here into the Flood story, we are given indications that people are still following and worshipping God, but not nearly as strongly or broadly or well as we would like to think. 
you know, when in fact we had only the three characters, God, Adam, and Eve, it was pretty clear that when God, you know, said don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that Adam and Eve were supposed to follow that. Um, there was obviously some kind of friendship or relationship between these characters, like God frequently discussed with Adam and gave him direct commands. There, like, it emphasizes that God was walking in the garden at one point. Like, God apparently is comfortable hanging around Earth in the age of Eden and Adam and Eve. Um, there's no reason to think that he's not talking to Cain directly, that his relationship to Cain and Abel is, you know, like, very personal in addition to being the relationship between humans and their creator. Um, as much as apparently God wants some kind of sacrifice from Cain and Abel, it doesn't seem like this is necessarily a formal religious affair, but it's, again, complicated, and this would go on to explain why Cain is so personally offended by God accepting Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's. Um, this is not the behavior of someone who has some like distant god who may or may not respond to your uh to your sacrifices on an altar and whose responses can only be interpreted in like ogres and and you know mysterious happenings in the weather no this makes a lot more sense if cain is in fact sacrificing to this guy he knows who is super powerful and awesome but also someone that cain knows and wants you know his, his respect and favor um killing your brother in order to let to make god focus on you makes a lot more sense in that context um, so here, by the time that we've got all of these generations, all of these people who have apparently had way more kids than just the one that is listed in the genealogy, God apparently is still interacting with people in this kind of direct way. Um, but at the same time, there's no indication that people care about him anymore. Like something's either there are too many people and God's just the one God or maybe God has been, you know, interacting with them in a way that is closer to our experience of God where he is, you know, not actually like walking around in our backyards on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, whatever the case may be, something has happened. That There is a sundering of God and human beings. Um, that's what seems to be indicated by this whole business with the Nephilim. Like, as much as God indicates that, you know, hey, people have gotten wicked and therefore I need to destroy them, the and then therefore we might ask, so what's the deal with the giants? Do they have anything to do with this? The logical conclusion seems to be that the giants and the sons of God and the Nephilim or whatever is going on here have in some way separated humans from God. Um, there is a further degree of separation than the one brought about by the fall. And this is, like, God doesn't want to hang out with us anymore, in short, because of whatever's been going on here. And then finally, when he does take a look at what, you know, is going on on Earth, his conclusion is, this place is just beyond redemption. There is no way that I can fix this, so I'm just going to wipe it out and start all, start all the way from scratch. Um, this is the closest thing I can get to a pretty cogent interpretation of what's going on with the Nephilim. That there are two stages of separation here. One that sort of drive, drives God from being sort of like physically walking around on Earth on a regular basis, or at least physically interacting in the lives of everyone on Earth. Um, and this second phase where God looks back and is like, no, this is, this is beyond fixing at this point. Um, which is where Noah enters the story. 
And again, I don't feel, like, obliged to capitulate the Noah story. This is super straightforward. The details are interesting, but they're, you know, extremely well documented. Um, obviously, there is a flood. God selects Noah, like, singles him out for, you know, protection from this flood. God instructs him, you want, I want to build you to build this boat. The boat is going to carry you, your immediate family. And, you know, notice that it is Noah's descendants, not like his father or grandfather, which further complicates the whole genealogy situation. You know, was Methuselah on the boat? If so, how did he survive to be 969? Again, the writers do not seem terribly interested in these problems. Um, but it is Noah and his direct descendants who are on the boat. They get saved. Um, so it is Noah, his kids, their kids, possibly their kids, based on how old everybody is at this point. Um, and also, of course, the animals. Like, as much as God is interested in destroying the world, you'll note that God does protect the animals. Um, the creation is still good, as much as humans have corrupted it and corrupted themselves. God is out to save as much of the created order as possible here. Um, and so we get this giant boat with all the animals on it and big flood. It floats around for a little while. And then we get, of course, the story of like Noah sends out the raven. The raven comes back. Seems like there's still water all over the place. Noah sends out the dove. The dove comes back, but it has an olive branch. So we know the waters are receding. And then we send out the dove a final time. The dove doesn't come back. So we know that there's dry land out there to sustain the dove. And then shortly afterwards, the boat comes to a rest on the top of a mountain and we get, you know, every, all the animals get to go home. Um, now, it's worth noting, especially as a student of mythology and as a scholar of mythology, the flood story is one of the great mysteries of the sort of interaction between science and mythology. Because we have the flood story as it's recorded here. Um, there is definitely a flood story recorded in the Gilgamesh with Utnapishtim. Um, the Greeks have their Deucalion and Pyrrha story, which is, you know, another, the gods just flood the world and they have to survive by, like, floating around in a box. Um, and this is common in many, many cultures. Like, even in Native American mythology, frequently I encountered flood stories where, like, the entire world was flooded and only a handful of people survived because of, like, a boat or a box or, you know, specific instructions from whoever the divine figure might be in these cases. The... It is weird, but everyone has a flood story. Like, almost every mythological tradition that is, you know, anywhere robust enough to have multiple stories survive to this day, the flood stories somehow survive. Um, now, some mythologists point to there must be some sort of, like, original flood story that just somehow survived in all of these traditions. Like, you know, again, if there is a Babylonian flood story in literally the oldest like written text we have today besides like ledgers of of granaries um that's a pretty good indication that this is a super duper old story and you know the native americans very well might have carried it across the bering strait if that was their deal or across the pacific ocean if you you know take to the polynesian sort of migration tradition um, there are a lot of potential explanations where, like, there is one common source for this flood story and it spreads throughout all of, you know, human beings. Um, but this is complicated by the fact that most anthropological traditions argue that mythology develops after the spread of human beings to all corners of the earth. Um, so that's difficult to sort of reconcile. Um, the other possibility, of course, is that there just was some kind of global flood. Um, which, 
I mean, science doesn't seem to think that it happened, although there is some really weird evidence in certain places, like the fossil record gets kind of messy at certain strata in certain places. Um, Ken Ham is very quick to point out that, like, you can find weird fossil records that indicate that like there was in fact sea life well above sea level for a significant duration of time um again i'm not a scientist i can't weigh in on that one uh probably the most likely version of this story like or at least the most likely explanation for why we have all this that you know offends the least number of you know scientists while also offending the least number of religious folks is that there were, in fact, multiple independent floods, and this story kind of grew up out of that. You know, in the same way that you can identify, like, trickster characters in many mythological traditions, presumably because people just behave this way as a sort of underlying principle of human nature. Likewise, most places on Earth are subject to floods. Um, and those that are not subject to floods are usually close to those that are. We are all keenly aware of the existence of oceans and rivers and the possibility of water as a destructive force. Um, now that said, there are way too many similarities to sort of ignore, like, between these various traditions. So again, a mystery it will remain. Um, but at the very least, it is worth noting that, like, this is probably the most famous of the flood narratives, you know, at least because Christianity is, like, a dominant religion to this day, um, and this being the foundation of Judaism, Christianity, and, you know, Islam suggests that the story of Noah will get a whole lot of traction. Um, but it is, again, a great mystery. Like, where do all these flood stories come from if not from some kind of actual global flood like the one recorded here in the Bible? Um, so, I guess one point for Ken Ham, like, come, you're, the ball is in your court, scientists. Um, I know that there have been some scientific efforts to sort of reconcile this. Like, there was at least one scientist that I encountered in my reading of Vina Deloria, um, who apparently, like, his deal was he looked at all the mythological texts and started with their assumptions and then tried to justify them scientifically instead of the other way around. Like, apparently there was, according to this guy at this time, where, like, Mars was, like, a comet that just sort of, like, flew off course before it ended up in its orbit and it passed, like, real... Or, passed really close to the earth at one point causing massive geological upheaval and changing like the rotation of the earth for a little while no scientist takes this guy seriously but it is interesting to note what you get when you start subordinating science to mythology instead of the other way around but again from my hermeneutical perspective this doesn't seem like a terribly useful use of our time um again i'm here to understand the text as it presents it's stresses there was a flood because god was dis was displeased with the nature of human development um whether or not we can you know justify this scientifically or use science to justify the mythology is kind of mo of a moot point to me um it's interesting i you know unlike many of the other places where we try to reconcile science with mythology i think that this like actually has some interesting repercussions for both science and mytholo mythological study. Um, but again, if we're if our goal here is to understand what the Pentateuch is telling us, this is kind of beyond our ken. 
Like, it, I am less interested in the matter of, is this a believable thing that happened, and more interested in what does this say about God, the characters, the, the history of human beings, human nature, etc. Um, and as far as that's concerned, the emphasis here is very much that God, on the one hand, cannot abide this kind of relentless wickedness and evil. Um, like, it is noteworthy that, you know, despite the fact that God was apparently willing to not just, like, not kill Cain for murdering Abel, but actually actively protect him as a way of sort of, like, undermining the whole cycle of violence vengeance traditions, um, it is worth noting that God here does not have such a merciful approach. Um, everyone dies except for Noah and his family. And while we can definitely point to God's mercy in that God does save Noah and his family, um, even though Noah very clearly doesn't deserve it, as we will see in a moment, um, it is noteworthy that God can, in fact, get pushed too far. Um, that God has, as many Christians would put it, an internal holiness that is offended by human evil. Um, and that that offense, that sort of internal righteousness, that, that holiness, that nature of God is incompatible with the level of evil that has grown on the earth at this point. God needs, by his very nature, to correct the situation. Um, that's important. That's the really important takeaway here. God can be pushed too far. Um, God can repent of his decisions we're told um like even repent of his decision to create human beings altogether like that's literally the way that it is phrased in in uh six seven um and while we might very well have questions about well does god have foresight like does he really change his mind what's the deal here um whether this is like literal or metaphorical it definitely indicates to us that god is not to be trifled with that while God is long-suffering, as we will be told later, while he is forgiving, as we, as we have seen, you know, even in these passages, there is a limit. And this is beyond that limit. Now, once God has flooded the world, we do get a covenant with Noah. Um, specifically, God swears never to flood the world in this way again. Um, and as evidence of this promise, as, as sort of like the guarantee, he hangs his bow in the sky, which almost like 99% of interpretations read this as the rainbow. Like, you know, after a rainstorm, you see the, the colors in the sky. Scientists say it's because of refract refracted light, etc. Whatever the mythological explanation here is, this is the promise that, hey, yeah, it's going to rain from time to time. Don't stress out, this is not going to be a world-ending rainstorm, I have promised, and here is my reminder of that promise. Um, so, yeah, the rainbow is both evidence of God's mercy, we are not going to get a flood again. It is evidence of God's protection, you will not die as a consequence of rain, or at least like the entire human species will not be wiped out um, by rain. Um, and note that this is the first covenant we are going to run into. Covenant language is really important here in Genesis and Exodus and beyond. Um, this is the first time that God, rather than just like doing something for somebody, um, like don't eat from the tree of, God, of knowledge of good and evil. This is like the one prohibition in Genesis 1 to 3. And then like God protects Cain, but it's not necessarily a covenant. It's just like a mark. 
Here, God makes a covenant. Now, covenants are very well attested in the ancient Near Eastern world. Like, there are plenty of written accounts of Hittite covenants. Most of the Israelite covenants we run into here in Genesis and beyond will follow that model. Um, specifically, in a covenant, you usually have two people each agreeing to perform one part of the covenant arrangement. Um, and then usually this is followed up by we're going to like sacrifice a bunch of animals and walk between the different like separated parts of the animals as we see with Abraham in a little bit. Um, and then both of them, you know, swear like, yes, I will uphold my part of the covenant. Here, as with Abraham, at least in the first part of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, God is doing a one-sided covenant. Like, there is no divided animals here with Noah, but God pledges, I will not flood the world. I will, in fact, re remember you and, you know, the like, saving you. I am not going to destroy the universe anymore. Um, here is my bow as guarantee. Um, but, importantly, it is worth noting that Noah pretty quickly screws this up as well. Like, as much as this is a complicated passage, and as much as, again, we're focusing on complicated passages here, um, we should stress that along with this flood story and flood narrative, we get a kind of more complicated narrative, um, specifically the relationship between Noah and Ham, one of his sons. Um, so shortly after the, the whole rainbow covenant business is, is dealt with, like here in Genesis 9:20, we're told that Noah goes on to like become a vineyard planter, a husbandman, um, and then he gets super drunk on his own wine. And then we are told, verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Alright, so this one requires quite a bit of explanation, but is actually kind of super important because it was in fact a very famous argument for slavery for many, many years to come. Um, so Ham is one of the three sons of Noah. We have Shem, we have Japheth, we have Ham. Um, if you examine the genealogy in uh, Genesis 10, you will note that like, Shem is kind of the father of the Semitic races. He is the father of the Jews. He is father of the Arabs. Like Abraham is a descendant of Shem and therefore all of the Abrahamic nations that we'll see are deriving from Shem's uh, sort of like inheritance and lineage. Japheth, on the other hand, is, you know, it's not discussed in the text because Japheth is of limited importance um, to the sort of Jewish cultural history but Japheth is usually associated with Europe like he's going to move north and he's going to be the sort of father of all of the European nations at least as far as the Bible is concerned Ham on the other hand is the father of Canaan who is usually associated with Africans and importantly with dark-skinned people so when Ham is cursed by Noah into being like the servant of Shem and Japheth, many have argued that this is a biblical argument for the enslavement of Ham's descendants, i.e. Africans, 
to Europeans, Jews, etc. Um, on the one hand, I am eternally frustrated by this. Like, there's no place in the text that obviously explains this relationship. And for 19th century, like, plantation owners to be arguing from this passage to justify their ownership of slaves in America in the 19th century AD is nonsense. Like, mind-bogglingly nonsensical. Um, on the one hand, like... It's nonsensical just because it's so far removed from the contemporary world that they're talking about that there's just no way that they can string together like a handful of, you know, kind of messy passages that clearly do not or that are not interested in elaborating the like future histories of these various peoples. There is a lot of speculation. There is a lot of you know, assumption going on here. And at the end of the day, it is rendered all the more absurd by the fact that these people are greedy assholes who really just want to have a biblical justification for their behavior. This is reading the thing that they want to do into the text, not sort of jumping from the text into an interpretation uh, that that is most appropriate to the time. Like, to argue that slavery is acceptable based on this passage is to ignore all of the New Testament passages that reject slavery, all of the Old Testament passages where God is very clearly, like, trying to limit the spread of slavery, the fact that, like, he announces that every 50 years all the slaves are supposed to go free, even though this never happens. Um, this is clearly, like, not a pro-slavery text here. But... And I should emphasize this, but it should be stressed that this text is very interested in race and cultural history. Um, after the genealogies of Adam, which again are very much emphasizing that everybody dies, like very much stressing that, that sort of like post-fall world where now that there has been disobedience, everyone is going to die. This genealogy here is on the one hand stressing the gradual decrease in ages um, again, like we are getting down to the point where, you know, God is trying to make 120 years, the new standard for human beings. So Abraham, you know, being 90 years old and saying, I can't have kids anymore. Sounds really weird without like the genealogical distance sort of connecting these two. Although we aren't getting the ages of the individual characters here beyond Noah, like living to 950 years and then dying. Um, what we do see, though, is that there is very much an effort to set up the way that each of these characters, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, will give rise to different nations and cultures and races, essentially. Canaan is the son of Ham. Um, this is something that the Jewish text is very interested in. This is essentially an origin story for all of the Jews, their neighbors, and the people that they relate to in the ancient Near East, as well as Northern Africa, as well as Europe, and beyond. Um, this is an attempt to explain that, in the same way that, like, the rainbow is explained by the flood story, or marriage is explained by Genesis 1 and 2. Um, that's, that's clearly a priority. Um, and that will remain a priority. Like, throughout the Abraham narrative, you will see many indications of, like, offshoots of, you know, 
the Abraham's children or the sort of like nations and powers and cultures that Abraham is interacting with first, like the Egyptians and then, you know, the Canaanites and possibly the Philistines. Like we have a lot of indications that this text is very interested in talking about the world that the Jews inhabit in the fifth century, 15th century or whatever it is, BC, we are setting up the world as we understand it. And again, this is classic mythological prioritizing. Um, the, you know, Greeks are equally interested in establishing, like, who lives on what island, what relationship do they have to one another, what historical wars were they participating in, like, who is King Minos, the Cretans, how do they relate to the Athenians, like, they are very interested in that, and it's clear that the Old Testament is very interested in the Jews and their world as well. Um, so their neighbors are being established here. These cultures and races are being established. And it could very well be the case that Ham is sort of being set up as a slave race. It could very well be justified in the Old Testament that Jews are encouraged to have black slaves. Now, that's a fairly tough thing to justify going forward. Like, in the Old Testament, we are going to see God does prescribe slavery, but specifically slavery among the Jews. We're going to have a whole complicated contextual question when we get to what is going on with Leviticus and the Levitical laws and the laws that are described specifically for the Jewish people from Exodus through Deuteronomy. Um, there's going to be a lot of laws there, and it is occasionally going to be difficult to say, like, is this to be interpreted for everyone, like Jew and Gentile? Is this to be interpreted for the Jews specifically? Is this to be interpreted only for certain groups of the Jews? Is this only for the Jews for a certain period of time? Like, all of that we're going to get into in the, you know, weeks and months to come, and it is going to be a complicated discussion. But again, what I need to emphasize here is whether or not Ham is being set up as being the cultural slave race. This should not apply to Christians by any extent of the imagination. There is no way to justify slavery beyond Christ's coming into the world. Um, like, there just isn't. It changes the rules so dramatically. Like, yes, not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law, sure. But that law does not enforce what God has laid down either as, you know, tradition or passages, especially in Genesis. Like, Christians are not obligated to enforce God's laws about women being subservient to men as found in Genesis because, again, the Christian order means a redemption of the world. It is newly transformed we can cast off the old sinful self and apparently the old sinful ways and the consequences of sin as well if death is defeated so presumably are the punishments issued by god slavery you would think would fall into that category even if it is something that is developed after the fall noah is wrong here the curse that he passes on to his son while doing quite a bit of legwork for mythological justification of racial relationships is not to be held by Christians as somehow the standard of how we should behave and the, you know, natural order of the universe. This is not natural. This is unnatural. This story start to finish is unnatural. The fact that Ham walks in on his father's nakedness is criminal, yes, but sins can be forgiven. That's kind of the whole Jesus thing. So it is complicated. 
I'm not sure whether Jews would read this as a justification for slavery in the original text, but if they are, that text is so far away from Christianity that it should not be held as a justification. Not that I necessarily need to argue with 19th century Christians, but again to argue that this is bad interpretation by selfish people, not some sort of enshrined, uh, virtu not some enshrined legal reality of Christianity and Judaism. It is complicated. This text does have other assumptions, but for sure, this alone should not be seen as justification for slavery. It's too vague, it's too broad, it's complicated. Slavery was a reality of their world. It is something that they did feel the need to justify in the same way that they needed to justify rainbows, marriage, etc. But it is not necessarily a good thing in the same way that marriage is a good thing. Marriage is framed as a good in Genesis 2. The man is, it is not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helpmeet. The wife is devised for him. Instead, here we're talking about something that is the product of the brokenness of the world. It is a consequence of the brokenness of the world and an extension of the brokenness of the world. Now that said, since we do need to actually like talk about the story itself, I kind of jumped a couple of steps here. It does seem to indicate that the relationship between Ham and Noah in the actual like post-Noah drunk state was more sexual than the text seems to suggest. Like the idea that he just saw his father's nakedness may very well be, you know, polite King James slash Hebrew uh, phrasing to sort of, again, get at something that is much more sexual. Just as, you know the men, man and woman were naked and unashamed seems to be code for like they were having sex and there was no shame involved. We might very well see this passage as indicating that Ham had like raped his father while he was passed out drunk. Um, or at the very least like had in fact gotten sexually active with his father in some way. Um, the indication that Shem and Japheth walk in faces forward with, like, the, the sheet protecting them so they literally cannot see their father's nakedness undermines that a little bit. Like, the text does seem to suggest that this is, at least to some degree, about seeing one's father naked in a way that, you know, the, the earlier passage in Genesis 2 doesn't have that kind of context. At any rate, whatever is going on here, it is very wrong for Ham for Noah to get like plastered. It is extremely wrong for Ham to take advantage of the situation. It is very wrong for Ham to brag about it afterwards to his brothers. Shem and Japheth are the good sons for covering up their father, for giving him his dignity back, whatever that might mean. Um, Noah is right to be angry at Ham, but again, it is his anger and like the power of his cursing that seems to be effective here. Um, but again, it's complicated, it's messy, the text is, you know, not giving us a clear indication of how we're supposed to read this, how we're supposed to contextualize this. Again, this could be a justification for slavery in its time. To read it that way now seems like a leap of logic. Um, and certainly an immoral one at that. The next story is really self-contained. Uh, the Tower of Babel, as fascinating as it is, you know, as much as it has been made much of in literature and, and like storytelling, you know, way down the pike, it is very much just as it is here in this text. Like, apparently there are a bunch of guys who get together and they're like, let's build the tower all the way up to heaven. Um, God, you'll notice, seems to be 
frustrated or annoyed or peeved or possibly afraid by this. Notice the way that God talks about it here. 11.5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Um, notice God isn't terribly concerned. Like some people read this as, you know, the Tower of Babel is being erected to enter the heavens and therefore declare war on God. And, you know, the, like, the people on earth don't even seem to say that so much. They say, like, we can reach heaven. That's kind of the important thing. But notice that they're also concerned. We let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Like, as much as it is kind of hard to read why or the cause and effect that is involved here, what, is, what clearly is being emphasized is that in their pride, these people are trying to erect a monument that unites them. They are going to, you know, prevent themselves from being scattered upon the face of the earth. And God, seeing this, seeing that they are building this monument to their hubris, building a tower that reaches into heaven to unite them, sees that they are capable and doing great wickedness here and that their unity of language is in fact a potential force for destruction and danger. And God scatters them by giving them different languages, by, you know, confusing their languages. Um, this definitely reads to me as a hubris story. Like, this is almost unmistakable. In order to avoid some kind of effect, they do this big impressive thing, and then the only, like, the only uh, consequence is they get exactly the negative effect that they were trying to avoid in the first place. Like, there is something Oedipal in the way that it's like, oh, I am going to avoid the fate of being scattered, and in doing so, guarantee that we are scattered. Um, that's the most obvious interpretation that I can see here, um, at least from the way that the text is framed and phrased. Um, if God is in fact worried that the humans are getting too big for their own britches or that they pose a threat, that is clearly not in the text. Like, God is not coming down and seeing them and being like, wow, I better watch out or else, you know, they might take over heaven. Like, that's, that is not a danger here. Even less so than back in Genesis 3 where it was like, oh, well, it looks like the humans now know good and evil. We better stop them from eating the tree of life lest they become like gods. Um, like, even if we can read the, the text of Genesis 3 that way, we can't read the text of Genesis 11 that way. Hubris is definitely the thing on, on you know, that's being sort of isolated and discussed here. Um, but it is not a hubris that it is in any way posing a threat to God. Um, this is not God protecting himself. This is not God, you know, sticking it to humans who are, you know, like potentially becoming greater in, in the way that they behave. No, they are doing wickedness. They are trying to unite themselves, array themselves against God in some respect. Um, and God frustrates that, like demonstrates absolutely his power over them by scattering them through confusion of their language. Um, now, to sort of, like, wrap this once again back around, like, one of my favorite readings of the Tower of Babel um, is uh, in Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, where he hypothesizes that, like, 
languages were gradually sort of uniting into one common language for a long time and then some sort of weird historical event occurred to cause them to sort of gradually separate from one another over time and this is the tower of babel event in that interpretation again it's a speculative book like it's not rooted in science or, or actual history or anthropology but it is an interesting way of reading this um, to understand the Tower of Babel as being this sort of landmark moment at which point humans sort of epistemologically are unable to relate to one another, language as a no longer perfect mirror of the world, that I find really fascinating. Um, again, we've had some question about how language works in the, you know, like pre-Abrahamic period in Genesis. We've talked about how God can speak things into being, how names are accurate reflections of the beings that they that are in the world, how Adam's responsibility is to name the creatures, and that seemed to, seems to hold some kind of power over them. Here, that relationship between language and the created order seems to be sundered in some way. Language is no longer a trustworthy mechanism for interacting with the world. Language is, in some way, broken by God here. It is not just a matter of there suddenly being a bunch of different languages, but that all of these languages are apparently unreliable. Um, and it is not hard to see this as this big, game-changing moment where language's relationship to reality has shifted. It would kind of have to, necessarily, if there are now going to be multiple languages. If whatever that original language was, is lost. Um, and again, like, I'm getting super philosophical and the text is obviously not interested in these questions. But it is something that even the theologians don't seem to be terribly interested in. Like, they read the Tower of Babel as being a story of hubris, as it is definitely emphasized in this text. Um, but they kind of frequently miss what the actual hubris is. Like, the tower seems to be more an engine of uniting people rather than, you know, some sort of, like, middle finger thrown at God. Um, God frustrates them because he specifically does not want them to be united. Um, why that is, is unclear. Um, but it certainly seems to, to be a confrontation and these theologians frequently do not address, like the text doesn't seem to recognize that yes, building a tower to the heavens is in some way dangerous or bad or disrespectful. Um, they'd gloss over that part. What I find so interesting though, is that they also gloss over the part that really is interesting here, that there is in fact a new relationship of language to reality. Um, where the heck is that theological textbook? Like, where is my philosophy of language from a post-Babel standpoint hypothesizing about a pre-Babel perfect language? Like, I want that book. And yet, again, theologians tend to be fairly quiet on the subject, usually because they do not want to talk about the way that language works as a, an imperfect mechanism for God's revelation. Um, but it's complicated and it's messy and it's interesting. So I bring it up here at the very least food for thought, even if it is just one man's wild interpretation of a text that he specifically said that he didn't want to read that much into. I may be breaking my rules here, but I do so because I'm curious in this case, not so much because I have some sort of dogmatic agenda. Um, that said, we do get another genealogy after the tower of Babel. We get the entire uh, genealogy from Shem, 
the son of Noah, the, the guy who I posited was like the father of all of the Semitic peoples. And we l draw a line from Shem to Abram, who is now our main character and is going to be a huge deal for the rest of, you know, Jewish history and beyond. Um, I cannot or overstate the importance of Abraham here. Like, he is such an important part of this text. Um, he is probably the foremost of the patriarchs. Like, as much as we have had all of these important things to say about Adam and Eve, virtually all of the stuff we've been talking about up until this point is less important than Abraham, with the exception of the story of the fall in Genesis 1-3. to Like, yes, Cain and Abel, it makes for a fascinating story. Yes, Noah and the genealogy surrounding Ham makes for some fascinating storytelling. But Abraham, Abraham is where this really all starts. This is a huge turning point in the text from a broader theological standpoint. Like, here between the fall and Abraham, we are seeing sort of a chaotic, lawless universe. One where God's relationship to human beings is ambiguous and also very broken and sort of developing into more and more brokenness. We can read the story of Noah especially as being God's attempt to fix this, to sort of like reset the universe and put in this new created order. Um, but even then, it's clearly a failure. Like, obviously, you know, the first thing that happens after the flood is Noah and Ham apparently are engaged in some sort of awful betrayal and sin. Um, so obviously, evil hasn't been eradicated from the world, even if we have curtailed it in some way. Even if the world has been sort of like brought back to its uh, quasi Edenic state before the Nephilim sons of God giants or whatever were messing the place up in some profound or you know problematic way um, whatever the case may be Abraham represents the first real move forward um, Abraham's story indicates that God does in fact have a plan going forward um now, admittedly, like, from a mythological standpoint, studying this as, you know, a scholar of mythology, we could very well read this as yet another tradition that is being sort of, like, shoehorned into this, this text that is, you know, connected to the earlier traditions via genealogies. And that's totally fair. Um, we have seen, you know, as much as I was emphasizing that each of the chapters seem to be a completely decontextualized story, you know, Genesis 1 from Genesis 2, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 from Genesis 4, Genesis 4 from Genesis 5, the flood narrative from everything that's gone before. Likewise, the Abraham narrative seems to be pretty well self-contained. It's messy. There seem to be other sort of traditions or stories or, you know, repetitions or other sort of like the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing, just all kind of like wedged into one another. Um, but there is a much more determined and sustained narrative at stake here than we have seen so far in Genesis. Um, like so far, Noah is the guy who's had the most written about him. Like we get three to four sustained chapters just about the flood story. Um, just talking about why the flood happened, what Noah's role in it is, how the actual events transpire, even down to the nuanced details of like how big the boat was and how it was constructed, all the way to, you know, his sons, their behavior, and so on. 
But here with Abram, we will get like literally 10 chapters in a row that are primarily concerned with him, his direct relations, and beyond. And for the rest of Genesis, it's going to be the same. Abraham is the father of fathers. And all of the people who we're going to be talking about from now on are his descendants, are the fulfillment of the promise and the blessing that God has offered to Abraham. The question of why, however, is complicated. You'll notice, like, from the very beginning of the Abraham narrative here in Genesis 12, we do see that there is an interesting relationship between God and Abraham. Like, the first big move here is that God calls Abraham out of the city that he is living in, out of, you know, the Babylonian world, apparently, and tells him to leave his parents, leave his family, leave his town, his city, leave his entire social network, and go trust God and live in the woods. Um, and he does. Now, admittedly, like, this is sort of retroactively read as a great act of faith here in Genesis 12. It's not a very clear uh, idea that this is, like, faith that's motivating Abraham. But we do get a passage later on in Genesis 15, the sort of second uh, discussion of the covenant with Abraham. Um, in Genesis 15, 6, we're told, Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. This is kind of the key to understanding Abraham's story. Abraham is not necessarily a good guy. He is going to screw things up. He is not even necessarily all that faithful, depending on how we look at him um, and depending on how we understand his actions. But importantly, God counts his faith, the faith that leads him out of this you know, Babylonian worldview leads him away from his family and support system, leads him out into the wilderness with, you know, his, his nephew Lot, who like is kind of a screw up and, you know, Abraham can't trust him worth a damn. Um, and God counts that faith, counts Abraham's faith as though it were righteousness. Um, this is obviously something that is really developed in Christian thinking, like Paul has this entire discussion of Abraham and his faith being counted to him for righteousness. Hebrews includes Abraham in like the hall of faith uh, discussion. Like Abraham is like celebrated for a wide variety of reasons. And on the one hand, I do think that like reading him as the champion of faith is a particularly Christian reading. I also don't think that's wrong even by the Jewish standard here in the text. It is obviously emphasized that as much as Abraham isn't perfect and makes a lot of mistakes, that he is still singled out by God, and the singling out of him by God seems to be for his faith. That much seems pretty clear. Like, we see it here in the fact that Abraham is willing to go when God calls him, we see it again explicitly in that passage in Genesis 15, 6. We see it again when, you know, uh, he is sort of like called to believe after uh, Sarah has experienced menopause. And we see it a last time when God tests Abraham and tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. All of this suggests that the primary thing that connects Abraham to God is Abraham's faith. That's pretty dang clear. Um, it is by far the most obvious recurrent idea that links, you know, this these two characters. Especially in the context of Noah's failure, the Tower of Babel, all of these people who are who have their own agendas and seem pretty disinterested in what God is doing. Um, it seems that whatever God's 
doings on earth might be whether he is in fact like walking around hanging out on earth or whether in fact he is like spending most of his time in heaven um people are not listening him the to, to him the way that abraham does um abraham changes his entire life multiple times at god's beck and call and for this god rewards him like immensely um, notice the promise here, as it's stated in Genesis 12. Um, now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, we're going to get multiple different restatements of this blessing over time. We get an expansion on the great nation in Genesis 15, where we're told that like he's going to be the father of many nations. Um, or again, in the, the covenant of circumcision, where he's not just like the father of many nations, but also like he will, the number of his offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Like, obviously this is going to get developed, but more like the actual essential blessing does not change. It is just elaborated upon when Abraham's uh, faith is flagging or when he wants more details. Um, but notice here in this first discussion, yes, he is going to be a great nation. Yes, he will be blessed. Yes, his name will be great. All of these things would indicate that like, yes, he is going to have plenty of children and they are going to celebrate him as being an awesome father, like as being a really important figure in their lineage and their history. All of his descendants will look back at Abraham and celebrate him. But importantly, the other important note like here in Genesis 12 is that he will be a blessing and that those who bless Abraham will be blessed in turn, and those who curse Abraham will be cursed in turn. And importantly, he will be a blessing, and in Abraham shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, this is where Jewish and Christian thought really do align. Um, the difference is how exactly the execution happens. Both agree that because of Abraham, the world is radically changed. God can make a home of this place and the you know fate of the world where God is going to essentially dwell with human beings is guaranteed. For Jews, this is occurring because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, the priestly nation who will go on to serve as a priesthood for the rest of the world, i.e. the Jews as a people are here to bring the truth of God, the revelation of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, the prophets into the world and therefore, you know, bring prosperity and wealth and, you know, God's blessings to the world. For Christians, it's more direct. Abraham's faith is in fact the faith shared by all Christians all Christians will have eternal life thanks to the same faith that Abraham experienced and practiced. So for the Jews, it is a racial blessing. Abraham's race blesses the other races of the earth. For Christians, it is a spiritual blessing. Abraham's faith is the faith that will bless the rest of the earth. So that's why I want to kind of draw the distinction here. 
for the Jewish readers of Genesis, the faith element is important because Abraham earns the respect of God, or doesn't really earn, but receives the respect of God because of his faith. It is counted to him for righteousness, even though he is not righteous, and Abraham's blessing will extend to the Jews first and then to everybody else. Abraham, his descendants are the crucial part of the blessing. For Christians, it is the faith that is the crucial part of the blessing. So I don't want to overstate the faith thing here. It is clearly a part of the text. It is clearly an important part of the text. But the faith justifies the blessing for the Jews. The faith is the blessing for the Christians. All right, just to get that out of the way. What we should also note about Abraham is that the blessing is, again, local. Like, it is, in addition to there, there being this business of blessing them that bless you and cursing them that curse you and you being a blessing for the rest of the world, the blessing and the promise is beyond just these sort of abstract ideas. So, again, in Genesis 15, when we get a, an actual official covenant with Abraham, um, the terms are changed a little bit. Abraham notes, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Specifically, like, Abraham is noticing that he hasn't had any kids, which makes it kind of difficult for all of his descendants to be a thing. Um, so he's asking God about this, and God confirms, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and that was counted to him for righteousness. So God is promising, first, you're going to be a blessing, you're going to be great, you're going to be revered. And Abraham believes this. But then Abraham has questions. Hey, I'm like getting old, I don't have any kids. There's some rando who is like the head of my head steward. He is going to be the guy who inherits all of my goodness. Um, God's like, don't worry. It will in fact be your son who inherits this blessing, who inherits this promise, who is in fact, the, you know, going to be the, the head of the nations that will come from you. But additionally, the number of nations that are coming from you are going to be incredibly numerous, like beyond the number of stars in the sky. And then God executes our second covenant here. This one more formally in line with the way that Hittite covenants work. Abraham divides up a bunch of animals, like splits them in half, and then God himself, in the form of this smoking furnace and burning lamp, walks through the, the like, uh, dismembered animals um, and comes back and indicates that he has fulfilled the promise. Now, unlike Hittite treaties, God goes alone. We're told that Abraham is possibly asleep for the way for this whole interaction. Genesis 15:12 and when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and lo a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he, presumably God, said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. 
And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, so we have multiple parts to the blessing. We have the those that bless you will be blessed, those that curse you will be cursed. We have the you will be the father of many nations, you will have many descendants, they will honor you greatly. Now we also have land. You are going to be serving in a strange land, specifically referring to, you know, the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt. But after several hundred years, you will be led out with great wealth, namely the Exodus. And at that point, you will inherit the entire land from the river of Egypt, presumably the Nile, all the way up to the river Euphrates in Persia. That's a pretty impressive swath of land. And that's at least part of the reason why there's so many people angry over who controls Israel at any given moment. Because, you know, when the Islamic world sees they, themselves as the inheritors of Abraham's promise rather than the Jews who see Isaac as the inheritors, then there's a big question about, like, who is properly the one who's supposed to control all of this area. Um, the fact of the matter is both of them are in inheritors of this. Like, that's what makes this text so complicated and the history so messy. Um, but what we should stress is that this land from, again, the Nile all the way up to Persia, um, like where the, the Fertile Crescent is usually located, um, this is all supposed to be promised to Abraham and his descendants. Um... We should also, like I said, note that Abraham doesn't have to do anything about this. Like, presumably his faith counting unto him for righteousness, that's done. Like, God doesn't need any more to indicate this. He makes the covenant alone. Abraham may be asleep, may not be asleep when the smoking furnace and the burning lamp passes between the animals. At any rate, God goes alone to indicate that he is taking all of the responsibility for fulfilling the covenant on himself. Something unusual when compared to the Hittite treaties and the way that that format works. Um, later, we get one more sort of formulation of the promise. The only obligation that Abraham has in this entire process, because he's Abraham at this point in chapter 17. Um, in chapter 17, we're told that Abraham needs to circumcise himself and every male member of his household. And this is going to be sort of the mark of the covenant. Like God even says, this is my covenant in you. Um, so it's kind of ambiguous exactly what the relationship is between the covenant or between the circumcision and the covenant, like whether the circumcision is just the sign of the covenant or whether this is in fact part of the covenant. Um, it is messy. We're definitely going to see circumcision become a big thing later on. Uh, like Moses's midnight circumcision is one of the weirdest scenes in the Exodus narrative. Um, nonetheless, circumcision is going to be the mark of the children of Abraham inheriting the covenant from God. Um, but it does not seem to be the fact that it's like contingent upon circumcision. Notice most of the promises that God has made were made before he introduced the stipulation about circumcision. So Abraham's circumcision seems, you know, to be, yes, commanded by God, but also somewhat irrelevant to the outcome, which I want to stress because this is going to be the model for most of the covenants to come. Like, 
as much as, you know, like even the, the covenant with Moses and the elaborate system of laws that God devises, this is not considered to be like payment in full for the blessings that God is offering. Rather, this is the sign, the signature on, of God on human beings. This is how a human being indicates that they are going to follow the covenant and accept the blessings, that they are in fact God's chosen people. Abraham's circumcision seems to be more sign of covenant than, you know, his end of the bargain. Abraham doesn't have an end of the bargain here. There is nothing that he can do to merit the blessings that God is just lavishing upon him. This is not payment for, you know, land and descendants and honor and blessing and so on and so forth. God's going to do that anyway. The circumcision is just the sign, the symbol, the indicator. And Abraham does it gladly, obviously, as much as I imagine it is fairly uncomfortable for him to be like a 90-year-old dude getting circumcised. Um, what we should emphasize, though, like, if these are the blessings, if these are the sort of the, the uh, ways that Abraham is going to enjoy God's covenant, and the, the, these are, like, the terms of God's covenant with Abraham... We should also note that, like, Abraham's behavior over this passage doesn't necessarily warrant all of the praise that he is getting. Again, that seems to be what the text is emphasizing. Um, we see multiple occasions where Abraham seems kind of faithless, untrusting in God. Um, first and foremost, when they are in Egypt, we get this whole weird sort of interaction repeated again when Abraham meets Abimelech later on in the story, where apparently, like, he goes to Egypt and he's like, hey, my wife Sarai is really hot, and I am worried that the Egyptians are going to, like, murder me so they can sleep with her and, and, and take her for their own. Um, so he tells Sarai to act like she is his sister instead. Um, which seems to indicate that Sarai is in fact getting, like, carried off by the Egyptians at one point, and they are in fact having sex with her. Um, like, it, the time is unclear, the text is very explicit, or is not at all explicit about this, but she, just the sheer amount of time that transpires between, like, Sarai getting sort of carried off by the Egyptians and then finally getting restored to Abram later, like, in the Abimelech story especially, it's like all of the women of the household are unable to bear children. And it's like, well, clearly that must have taken like a year or two in order for everyone to notice that like nobody's having babies anymore. Um, so clearly this seems to be taking quite a bit of time. And if you want to see this as, you know, the Bible being misogynistic, you are welcome to be my guest here. Um, what I do tend to think is the case is that the Bible largely agrees with you that it is misogynistic and also wrong. Um, that, Abraham doesn't need to take these precautions. This is going to be something we actually run into quite a bit with the patriarchs here in Genesis now that we have sort of gotten over the antediluvian period and are moving into looking at like these major historical figures and, and sort of like almost quasi-heroic figures for the Jewish people and the Abrahamic religions to follow. Abraham isn't a saint. He really isn't. Like, he screws up here. As much as he is going to receive blessings after blessings and gifts after gifts for this, um, he is chastised by both the king of Egypt when he finds out that Sarai is actually Abraham's wife, as well as Abimelech for the same reason. Um, both of them are going to say, dude, if you had just told me that she was her wife, we could have avoided all of this misery and unpleasantness. 
Like, everyone suffers as a consequence of this decision, but Abram comes out on top anyway. We might be tempted to read this as Abram does the right thing here and is rewarded for his efforts, but I don't think the text is emphasizing that at all. Abram is too shrewd for his own good. It seems to be the case that he is not trusting God to take care of him and Sarai here. Um, and consequently, he is actually straining his relationships with his, you know, friends, allies, and the, the neighbors in short. Um, if anything, what we're shown is that, um, like, God is protecting Abraham in spite of Abraham's bad behavior. Um, which is, a, again, a dynamic we're going to see again with Jacob, with uh, Joseph, and beyond. Abraham is not perfect. Abraham, his faith is counted to him for righteousness, and that faith is apparently flagging from time to time. He doesn't trust God to protect him in these situations, and it hurts his relationships with others. Um, so again, it's kind of hard to pick up on exactly how we're supposed to read this, but I tend to think that that's the best approach. We are to see this as Abraham failing in these situations, and yet God protecting him despite this. Um, now that said, there are some cases where Abraham really does sort of like prove that he is a stand-up guy. Um, he and Lot are apparently traveling together to the promised land originally, but they have some falling out immediately after arrival. Like Abraham and Lot's flocks keep like bumping into each other. And there's some question about like which part is for Abraham's flocks and which part are, for, are Lot's flocks. We should emphasize that both of these people have households. Um, like when Abraham and, you know, his household go to war to get Lot back from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and their, you know, apparently abortive war. Um, it's noted that, like, Abraham's household is, like, 300 guys all, you know, fighting fit and ready to go to war, which means that there's got to be, like, at least another, you know, 50 men who are either too old or too young, probably an equal number of women. Like, we're talking about Abraham is a moving city, essentially. He is a nomadic people in his own right, and Lot is as well. Um, admittedly, they are all sort of like under Abraham's leadership, like arguably even Lot is under Abraham's leadership, but Abraham and Lot are both the wealthy sort of nomadic shepherds, uh, shepherd leaders who sort of like run this entire, you know, small town's worth of people as they're wandering into this territory. Um, and as a consequence, they are political forces in their own right. Like, when, in fact, you know, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to war, they're asking Abram for help, and Abram's like, eh, I'm not actually going to take anything that you give me. I don't want it to be said that I got my wealth from your generosity, your benevolence. Um, thus indicating, again, Abram's faith here. Like, it seems to fluctuate, but on, on the other hand... You know, Abraham does, in fact, have some really impressive moments. He goes to war to rescue Lot and is successful, presumably because he has, he has God's blessing behind him. He does, in fact, turn down the gifts from the king of Sodom, trusting in God instead. That's pretty impressive. Um, that said, he apparently doesn't his, trust his wife around people, which is kind of a bummer. Um, and there are multiple times where he seems to distrust God's promise insofar as he's like, are you sure I'm going to have this kid? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, Sarai, she is 
as the text puts it in the King James, it is no longer with her after the manner of women. Like, she's had manor menopause. She's no longer capable of getting pregnant. Um, and God's like, nope, I got this. Don't worry about it. Um, so Abraham shows remarkable faith in certain circumstances. It is not necessarily like he is just the paragon of, of faith and, you know, trust in God 24-7. Um, it seems to be sporadic. And we should recognize that. Like, again, one of the major things, one of the major trends that we are seeing here is that God, in taking Abraham as the blessing that is going to be given to all nations, seems to be very much engaged in the undoing of sin through Abraham. Like, again, Christians read this as being Jesus. Jews read this as being, you know, Messiah and presumably, like, the, the world to come and the Jews' role as a priestly nation to the other nations. Whichever way you read it, it is clear that God is fixing the fall through Abraham. This is the first step, the first line in the, like, grand salvation of the universe. Abraham's a big deal for this reason. But Abraham himself is not the one who is doing it. That is also emphasized here. Abraham himself is not fixing the world. God is fixing the world through Abraham and has selected Abraham not because of his righteousness, but because of his faith instead. Um, can't emphasize that one enough. Um, that said, again, this does also feed into our sort of grander racial political discussion that, see, that keeps coming up as well. Much of these passages are determined towards talking about not just Abraham and his descendants and the way that his descendants will in fact make different nations, different races, different peoples, but also just Abraham and his sort of interactions with the locals, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Canaanites who are apparently also living in the land. Like, all of these are in fact people and characters living in the same area and people and characters who will give rise to the nations that will be important in Moses's day as well. Um, we'll come back around to Sodom and Gomorrah because we've got a lot to say about what their deal is and how they relate to Christian and Jewish history altogether. For now, suffice it to say that they are just some of the players involved representatives of themselves, greater nations, and so on and so forth, and they're not terribly good neighbors at that. Um, but we should also notice that Abraham's choices also affect the way that the races will develop. Again, Abraham is the father of many nations. It is noteworthy that not all those nations get along, and virtually every new patriarch we encounter is going to represent a new offshoot of this national character. So if Abraham is sort of the father of many nations, the first offshoot nation we see is embodied in the person of Ishmael. So while, like, right before the, the circumcision part of the covenant is introduced, after the second phase of the covenant where God, like, walks through the, the dismembered animals, we have Sarai comes with a, up with a solution. Since Sarai is not having children, since she is still barren, as the King James puts it, um, she says, come in unto my handmaiden Hagar. Hagar is apparently Egyptian. Um, she is, you know, apparently, like, young enough to still bear children. Um, this is not uncommon, especially in Genesis. We're going to be seeing uh, Jacob do the same thing. Um, but, again, it's complicated. We'll talk about it. Um... Sarai gives Hagar to Abram 
with the understanding that Abraham will impregnate Hagar and that the child that is brought up by Hagar will sort of count as Abraham's child and also sort of like secondarily count as Sarai's child. And this is pretty much how it goes down. Um, Abraham does in fact impregnate Hagar. Hagar gives birth to a child. This child is named Ishmael. Um, now, according to Genesis 17, God says that's not the child of promise. Ishmael is not the one who is going to be the one who is like the father of many nations and inheritors. This is not going to be the child who, you know, everyone who blesses him will be blessed and everyone who curses him will be cursed. This is not the child who will receive all the land, etc., etc. Um, that will be reserved for the child of both Abraham and Sarah, now that we are renaming them. Um, which we could have another conversation about names and language, but we're not going to because we've already talked about that ad nauseum at this point, and I don't want to interrupt too much. Um, so Ishmael, on the one hand, is sort of the accident. But it is important to note that after Isaac is born, and Hagar gets super jealous, or uh, Sarah gets super jealous of Hagar, she kicks him out into the wilderness, and yet God says to Hagar and to Ishmael, I will protect you. Ishmael will be the father of nations in his own right. He will also be famous and an important leader. To this day, Arabs derive their inheritance from Ishmael. Importantly, though, the Quran states that Ishmael, not Isaac, is the child of promise. So I want to emphasize this. Obviously, Islam was not a thing when this text was written. Like, that's its own sort of tradition, and it develops into a religion in a formal sense with the writing of the Quran in roughly the 5th century AD as opposed to the 5th century BC. Um, whatever the case may be, it should be noted that for the Jews, they would have read this as itself indicating a sundering of these two peoples and also a frustration in the project that God is putting forth. Yes, God does bless the Arab people. Yes, God does bless the descendants of Ishmael. They become a powerful nation in their own right with their own special relationship to God. For the Jews, they are not the inheritors of the promise. But even then, I suspect that that tradition that Ishmael is the actual inheritor of the promise, the one that is, you know, written down in the Quran by Muhammad and becomes sort of the cornerstone of the Islamic faith, this is probably due to an oral tradition that does coexist at the same time as Genesis is put down on, on paper. Which means that for the Jews, they're going to look at this as the Arabs are a closely related rival nation with their own convictions at odds with ours. So again, we are looking at an example of Abraham making a mistake. A mistake that God blesses abundantly anyway, but a mistake that will in fact frustrate and complicate the whole saving narrative that is at stake here. God is trying to save the world, has chosen Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, to do it. Every choice that Abraham makes to try and fulfill this covenant that isn't directly in line with his faith in what God has promised is in fact going to make life more difficult for everyone involved. That's what I want to stress here, because this is going to be the similar paradigm we see in many of the other texts. As much as the patriarchs do things that are, from the perspective of even the Mosaic Covenant, sinful, 
They are blessed nonetheless, and yet their decisions cause evil and suffering. That's the line I want to stress here. It isn't necessarily abundantly clear from this text, especially to contemporary readers, because we're looking at this and we're like, so Abraham is sleeping with multiple women? How is that okay? And instead, usually the Christian explanation will be, well, yeah, God didn't put down the Ten Commandments then, adultery wasn't illegal then, whatever. I think that's short-sighted. Um, I tend to think that God has a very clear understanding of what is right and wrong and has, in fact, communicated that to Abraham and company, even though Abraham does violate it from time to time. But importantly, like the natural consequences of evil that come about from, you know, eating, the tree, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, likewise, when Abraham violates God's laws, even if they're not laws that he knows about, bad things happen as a consequence. Good things will still happen. God's plan will continue forth unperturbed. But Abraham is going to make the plan more difficult, more complicated, more messy. He is going to make life harder for his descendants, for the people who are in fact the beneficiaries of the promise. If Abraham had not gone in unto Hagar, like Sarai suggested, presumably life would be better for Isaac and his descendants. Now, saying that is a pretty big, you know, insult to the Arabs and to the line of Ishmael, which I would emphasize, like, again, from a greater theological standpoint, yes, it was part of God's plan for Ishmael to be born and for the Arabs to be rivals to the Jews and all of this. Um, there are greater benefits than even we can see now to this plan, whatever that might be, understood from a properly Christian theological context. But at least for the readers in this text, we should note that this blessing comes with a grain of difficulty. It is complicated. It is messy as a consequence. Not that it might, would necessarily have been better for Abraham to not have slept with Hagar. That's not quite as clear. But at the very least, that this is a hiccup in the plan, a complication something that will cause harm to God's people going forward. This is what I mean by the text being very interested in race. Like, I realize that today in the, you know, we are uncomfortable talking about the racial implications of the Bible, especially when we associate that with racism, and, you know, racism is definitely a part of what's informing the text here. But what we should stress is that racism is a part of this text and is a part of most mythological texts. It is how a people identify themselves. And we Americans have a very complicated relationship with identity, self-identity, race, etc. A relationship that isn't exactly shared with 99% of the other countries on this planet. Um, the Jews have a very concrete, very powerful racial identity. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though we should note that there are racial and racist complications resulting from this racial identity. You kind of can't have one without the other, I suspect. At any rate, what we are seeing here is this Bible is in fact a story of God trying to fix the original sin of Adam, trying to fix the fall with a at least prospective or tentative racial solution. Abraham will be the father of many nations. Those nations will bring about the new order that fixes the damage done through the fall. 
in some way. I suspect at least that both Christians and Jews will agree on that front. Now, again, we do in fact see like the circumcision after Ishmael is born. We get their names changed, which I'm not going to speculate about exactly why we have the name changes on this one, except that the names are in this book are very important. And much as this text is focused very, very much on race, it is also focused very much on names. Like there are lots and lots of passages that I'm just sort of skipping over here that are like, hey, we found this well and we decided to make an agreement at the well. So now this is like the agreement well. Um, um, Beersheba. Like, the, the text goes a lot out of its way to explain places, names, you know, relationships, all of that sort of thing. We are setting up the world of Moses and company, the world that the Jews and Israelites inhabit um, way down the road here. Um, so as much as this is like an oral tradition, almost certainly predating Moses, if in fact it is Moses collecting it, we should also note that this predated tradition that Moses is collecting is collected for the purposes of Moses and his contemporaries. This is a story that is old, that has probably been around for a while, and that explains things that are commonplace, things that are contemporary to Moses and his generation. Um, now, the story of Abraham largely concludes as God promises. Like, we get a couple of guys show up, mysterious angel, angelicish figures, um, who we will be seeing again in the Sodom and Gomorrah story when we finally get around to it, hopefully before this turns into a three-hour lecture. Um, we, they, like, show up and Sarah laughs when she is told that, you know, she is, in fact, going to have a kid because, again, it is she has had menopause. She is no longer able to get pregnant. Um, and then she even gets this moment where they call her out and they're like, uh, why did you laugh? And she's like, oh, I didn't laugh. Please don't kill me. Um, but this, too, becomes a part of the plan. Isaac, the child that Sarah has, is literally named Laughter. Um, it's worth noting that, again, this dynamic that God is engaged with, this sort of like, what is the plan, what is not the plan, all often wraps up into the same endpoint. Like, again, I've been hesitant to talk about God's foreknowledge here because it hasn't been especially well explicated at this point. It hasn't even been especially well described up until this point. Like, before Abraham, it seems like God is in a purely reactive mode. Like, he is disgusted with human beings, so he floods the world. Cain murders his brother, so he marks Cain to protect him. There is very little indication that God knows what is going to happen next, that God has any foreknowledge whatsoever. But here in the Abraham story, God's foreknowledge is actually super important. God frequently emphasizes that, you know, we are doing things for Abraham because Abraham is faithful to us. God predicts that Abraham's children are going to be extremely numerous. And while you can read that as either God, like, vows to enact this, as well as possibly God has seen this and knows that it's going to happen, we are getting a better indication that God is in control of the future in a way that he hasn't sort of been, or in the way that it hasn't been suggested earlier on in this text. Um, if we are to understand what God's deal is, up until now we have seen God as an extremely powerful being capable of bringing the world into being who is holy and whose holiness can be offended by disobedience and sin, but who is also merciful and generous and protects those even even those who don't deserve it. Um, here we see this second, this sort of like new element to God's character. Um, namely that God 
is also capable of either directing the course of future events or has seen the course of future events and is, you know, able to report them to us. Um, something that will become more and more important as, as you know, this, as the Pentateuch goes on. Um, at any rate, Sarah does in fact become pregnant, whether, you know, miraculously enacted by God or foreknown by God or whatever, the text doesn't bother to draw differences and we probably shouldn't either at this point. Um, she names the child Isaac laughter. And so her sin kind of gets either glossed over or incorporated into the saving plan. Um, and then we have one more major sort of test for Abraham and his faith or Abraham at this point and his faith, namely the God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And this one's kind of a big one. Like, as much as Abraham's faith is frequently celebrated, and there's a big, like, you know, it, there are multiple occasions throughout this text where Abraham's faith is evident. The fact that God tests him here is especially interesting. Um, it's unclear why. Like, on the one hand, the text doesn't give us enough context to sort of appreciate why God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, whether it is just a task or whether there is something more complicated going on here, which leads me to think that this story isn't necessarily as decontextualized as many of the other oral tradition-type stories that we've seen so far. This story makes more sense in the context of Passover, in the context of, you know, even Christian salvation. Um, this text makes more sense in the context of Levitical sacrificial law. This clearly indicates a new paradigm that we are supposed to understand between God and human beings, namely this paradigm of substitution, that Isaac because he is miraculously concocted or for other reasons, like God definitely emphasizes at one point that every firstborn thing that openeth the matrix belongs to God. Presumably that does include Isaac, um, but it would presumably also include whoever Abraham's, Abraham's like oldest brother would be. Like all firstborn children are apparently belonging to God for reasons that aren't necessarily clear in this text. Um, but will become, you know, will be like explicitly stated in something like uh, the Passover narrative in Exodus. Whatever the case may be, whatever the reasoning is, what we see here is something that kind of prefigures these relationships. God tests Abraham's faith by telling him to sacrifice Isaac. And in some respect, we are using the context of later passages to think that this is appropriate that God does in fact have claim on Isaac, either because he is miraculous or because he is firstborn or any number of other reasons. So when God sets up this test, when Abraham is ready to sacrifice Isaac, when he is sitting there with the knife poised over Isaac and, you know, the ram is suddenly pointed out and it's like, no, sacrifice the ram instead. You know, even to the point, like, where Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Like, all of this indicates that God would be well within God's own rights to demand Abraham sacrifice Isaac to God. 
as much as that might be warped, as much as we might say that this is like horrible, human sacrifice, whatever, the text seems very strongly to indicate that God is within his rights to ask for this and that God is being merciful and gracious by telling Abraham to sacrifice something else instead. God could have demanded Isaac and didn't. Isaac's career as the inheritor of the blessing starts with redemption, with God saying that Isaac will in fact survive, will be given back to Abraham despite not deserving him, despite Abraham never you know, deserving Isaac in the first place. The fact that he is miraculous, the fact that he is, you know, the product of Sarah after she has her menopause thing. Now, obviously, tons of stuff has been written about the relationship with Isaac. Like, I could do an entire series of lectures alone on Kierkegaard's Night of Faith and Fear and Trembling. Um, but I won't, because that's not what we're doing here. What I want to emphasize here is that this does have major significance to everyone reading this text. This is a big moment. It is hard to tell exactly how the original audience would have read this. Like, if there was an oral tradition surrounding the story of Abraham that Moses is recording, it is really hard to see how that makes sense to that audience. This only makes sense in the context of the stuff that we know going forward, in the stuff that God knows going forward, whether out of foreknowledge or whatever. And this is probably the best evidence we've had so far of God's foreknowledge because God is clearly making plans for the future here. God is setting up a paradigm of sacrificing firstborn to God, which we are going to see repeated in future stories, in future episodes, in future events with other important prophetic figures. Isaac is the prefiguration of the Passover, the prefiguration of like the Levitical sacrifice, the scapegoat for Yom Kippur. Isaac is the paradigm that prefigures Christ himself. All of these are present in this particular text. And even if we are to say things like, hey, you know, obviously the Christians are like reading Christ's comp or comparison to Isaac after this text has been written, which is almost certainly true. Like there's no way that this text was written after Christianity. We still have to say that, yeah, Christians are symbolically interpreting this passage correctly. Um... A Christian will obviously point to this and say that this is all part of God's plan going forward. That God wants Christians to see Christ in this passage. Jews disagreeing with Christians will say that Christians are interpreting this passage to symbolically approximate Christ. Again, it's complicated. It's messy. But for the original audience, this almost certainly has symbolic and typological overtones. There is context to be understood here outside of this passage, outside of Abraham's story, outside of Genesis altogether. Which makes it astonishingly difficult for us to get at what exactly the original audience might have thought. Um, again, we have to take this passage and its original audience as being Moses's contemporaries, not whatever the oral tradition's contemporaries would have been. Um, does that mean that this passage was written later than the others? 
No, I don't think so. I think it is complicated here. I think it is difficult. I don't think we have a leg to stand on if we're going to try and reach back beyond Moses to an oral tradition. Um, in fact, the scholars who would argue that this was written in the 5th century and is like the product of, you know, J, E, D, and P actually have a much better leg to stand on here. They can say this passage was in fact written well after the Passover in order to sort of like retcon retroactively justify episodes like the Passover. Um, that makes way more sense if we are going to assume that, you know, there was an audience or if, how do I put this correctly without like getting so tangled in my own temporal references, that makes much more sense than prophecy usually would. Like, that's the trouble when we're talking about prophecy. And this is a prophetic passage if we are not to understand it as being written contemporaneously with the rest of the Torah. Um, we have to, if we are to assume, as this text kind of wants us to assume, that this was an oral tradition collected by Moses, the assumption is there was a point in time where this story was being told before the Passover had occurred, and people were like, what was the deal with Abraham trying to sacrifice Isaac? Why did God do that? And this being just mysterious until some greater element of revelation had explained it away. Um, that's possible. Might even be the right thing, the way that it actually transpired. Again, if Genesis 1 is part of an oral tradition dating back well before Moses, who is to say, and Abraham too, this entire story must have been a story told well before Moses just because of the structure of this text. We must also assume that Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice at Mount Moriah was also part of an oral tradition, but one that was necessarily incomplete. One that didn't make sense to the people telling it. And that instead would be retroactively justified by the Passover and later events that made more sense in Jewish circles. That's the assumption that Christians must make. That's the assumption that Jews probably make. Although, again, you know, there is room for interpretation between these schools of thought. What I am stressing here is that I am leaving my skepticism on the table. Yes, the scholarly atheistic approach that says this text was written at the same time as the Passover and that there was no world tradition holds water here. But it isn't the only explanation. As much as it frustrates the mind to think it, there is the possibility that this story just had an open ending. That it didn't make sense to the original people hearing it for the first time. That Abraham was sitting there slack-jawed, the historical figure of Abraham assuming he existed, did not understand why God had put him through this particular test, except as, again, the sort of crowning example of Abraham's faith in God. Abraham walked away from Mount Moriah not knowing why this had happened. And he, nor Isaac, nor Jacob after him would understand it. It would only be Moses who would be able to interpret it properly. And then Christians again later, according to Christian theology. So this is, again, one of the places where that hermeneutic is so important, where the rubber really does meet the road. Depending on how you understand this text, you might end up with more problems, more questions, more troubles in trying to understand what did this person act or what did, does this story actually communicate. For me to try and get into the head of the original people hearing this story, 
this is difficult because we don't know because this story is most sensible after this has occurred but i don't want to dwell on it any more than i already have again giant question mark giant frustration that's what it is um, obviously it is an incredibly rich passage, one that makes so much sense in the light of the later events. One that, you know, again, Kierkegaard can write an entire book about and make this really interesting examination of how faith works. Um, all that I do not want to downplay. Um, I just want to stress that it, this is where my hermeneutic struggles the most to try and reconcile the, like, specific omissions that I am trying to incorporate into my thinking with the way that the story is told. This is a story that anticipates. It is therefore not able to be interpreted except through the lens of prophecy or none, or like a story composed at the same time as the events that it prophesizes. Um, I am not necessarily willing to accept either of those uh, for the purposes of this exercise. Like it makes sense on either one of those frameworks but again the assumption that at one point there was a prophecy but not a fulfillment is the necessary assumption underlying all prophetic texts um there was a time where people had heard this story and didn't know what the deal was in the same way that there is a time now that we have heard revelation and have no idea what to make of it in so many cases in this case as with revelation my response hermeneutically is the same you can't understand what's going on. The people who read this didn't know why it was told this way. I'm okay with that. Presumably they were okay with that. In the same way that I'm okay with having no idea what Revelation is telling us. Um, moving on, I do in fact want to spend the last, say, 20 minutes of our two and a half hour lecture talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, because as messy parts of the Old Testament go, this is one of the messiest. Um... First and foremost, I've talked about Sodom and Gomorrah in the past. I do want to avoid, like, totally rehashing everything that I've said there. Um, on the one hand, it should be abundantly obvious that this isn't necessarily a text about sodomy, so to speak. Um, the sin of Sodom isn't necessarily homosexuality. I've made that argument in the past. I will make it again here. Um obviously like sodom and gomorrah is complicated by the fact that we have other stories about sodom and gomorrah surrounding the destruction of sodom and gomorrah like there's actually you know set up and payoff here um you know insofar as any historical account can like have set up and payoff um we have in fact the wars of the kings where sodom and gomorrah are like at war with you know cheddar or and then, like, Abram rescues Sodom and Gomorrah, I guess, as well as specifically rescuing Lot. Um, and yet, Abram doesn't, like, doesn't trust Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, we also get the rather important passage with Melchizedek in that chunk, uh, which I definitely don't want to ignore. Like, we need to at least bring up Melchizedek. Um, in Genesis 14, 17, we have this passage, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedor Leomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And then we get the interaction between the king of Sodom and Abraham. 
Melchizedek is only here for like three verses. Um, but it is noteworthy that like Seth before him, Melchizedek is a follower of God outside of the Abrahamic tradition. Melchizedek in, is an indication that God is being worshipped, celebrated, praised, maybe even has a religion surrounding him, even in Abraham's day, separate from whatever is going on with Abraham personally. God is not unknown in the world that Abraham abides in. Even if Abraham is noteworthy for leaving home, leaving Babylon and the Babylonian world in order to sort of like follow God's commands for him, obviously this is not the only place where God is at work. Um, and the Hebrews, and Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, also emphasizes that Christ is of the order of Melchizedek, that he is not a Levite and therefore not of the Levitical tradition. He comes from the older tradition. Um, Melchizedek is fascinating as a consequence. And I did kind of want to like address the fact that yes, this text is giving us indicators that while this is the primary story we should be focusing on, this is not the end all and be all of God's interactions in the world. God is at work elsewhere as well. Abraham is the important part of the story, the racially significant part of the story, but not the, the sum uh, total. We should also notice that the business with Sodom and Gomorrah is in the context of Abraham and Lot as well. Like we've had the frustrations between Abraham and Lot where like Abraham and Lot were on the same territory and Lot was, you know, like grazing on Abraham's territory. So they both kind of separated for a while. Lot apparently threw in his lot, so to speak, uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah. Like he is living in the city of Sodom when in fact the three mysterious strangers show up in Sodom. Um... But we should also emphasize, just looking at this passage in Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction um, in chapter 19, uh, that it is not necessarily homosexuality that is the first thing that jumps to mind for the Jewish reader and the Jewish audience here. Um, notice that Sodom and Gomorrah and their behavior is contrasted against the behavior of Lot throughout this passage. Um, Lot initially meets the angels at the gates of Sodom, ushers them into his house to protect them, at which point the people of Sodom and Gomorrah start banging on the door demanding that they have their way with the angels, which is, you know, again, like ancient Hebrew for they want to gang rape them. Um, note that Lot's behavior is in direct contrast, though. Lot is a good host. He protects the angels. He takes them in. He protects them from the citizens of Sodom. Um, now, we might very well ask questions about why he is so eager to, like, hand his daughters over to the, you know, citizens of Sodom as, like, the, as a, you know, option for gang rape instead of the, these angels specifically. Um, but at the end of the day, this is importantly just stressing how important hospitality is to the Jewish people. Um, like I said, this is a text about hospitality. Strangers walk into a city and the people of that city are likely to murder them just for being strangers, just for fun, just because they can get away with it. That's the real danger here. Yes, the rape is bad and the fact that they want to gang rape them is bad. But this is one line of context versus dozens of lines of context. The text is very clearly thematically emphasizing Lot's hospitableness to the angels over and against Sodom's inhospitality to those angels. The fact that it's sexual 
only comes up briefly and is immediately forgotten. Like, the angels strike them all blind, the people of Sodom can't find the door to Lot's house anymore, and then they, like, sneak out into the night. That's it. It's our obsession with sexuality that causes us to read homosexuality as being the primary sin of Sodom into this text. And when I say that, I say that knowing full well that there is a long-standing tradition of that reading. Like, to the point that the word sodomy became, you know, synonymous with uh, anal penetration. Like, not to get too graphic here, but we do have to talk about this stuff if we're going to, you know, con confront this these issues appropriately and maturely. Um, sodomy became the word for anal penetration. And for literally thousands of years, uh, Sodom, the city, was the reason why it was called Sodomy the Act. Um, I don't think this is as old as the text, though. I think this is a more contemporary reading. Sodomy is a contemporary etymological invention well after Moses' day. Like, the word Sodom is not being used as a word for anal intercourse or as a word for sexual immorality or anything throughout the rest of the Hebrew text. Like, I'm 99% sure that is not the word that is being used. The Hebrew word is completely different. So I would imagine that it is either the Greek interpretation, i.e. the one from the Septuagint, or the Latin interpretation, the one from the Vulgate and beyond, at the very least something from the New Testament era that attaches homosexuality to the sin of Sodom. For the Hebrews, I think that was an afterthought more than anything. Um, it is hospitality which is emphasized in the course of this text. If there is an oral tradition about Sodom and Gomorrah, it was probably more interested in uh, hospitality than homosexuality. Um, again, it's our obsession with sex that is mapped on here. So when a Christian says the sin of Sodom is homosexuality, I usually get rankled. Like, it's not a terrible misinterpretation, but it is a bad one, and it gives more credence to contemporary homophobia than is warranted or necessary, especially if you are reading this particular text. I tend to think that homosexuality was just a reality of the ancient world, just based on what I've read and what I've experienced and what I've, you know, studied. This seems to have been pretty normalized. Which is not to say that God tolerated it. Like, we'll get to the passage in Leviticus where God emphasizes that homosexuality is an abomination. I'm not trying to, like, gloss over the Bible's attitude on homosexuality or, like, apologize for its attitude towards homosexuality. It is, unlike its attitude towards slavery, pretty obviously against it. Like... Slavery, you know, is tolerated in the context of the text, and there is room for interpretation here, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, like, it's really easy to argue from this text that slavery is wrong. It is really hard to argue against the Bible and say that homosexuality is permissible. Um, slavery is accepted in Genesis sort of pushed back against in Exodus and then utterly rejected in the New Testament. In, as far as homosexuality goes, it's pretty consistent. There is a repudiation of homosexuality in Leviticus that carries into Numbers and beyond. There are multiple places where homosexuality is rejected throughout the Old Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, it is once again rejected and considered sinful there as well. 
So yeah, if you were looking for, you know, how can the Bible be compatible with homosexuality, I don't have an answer for you. I don't think it's possible. If you are in fact gay and a practicing Christian, that is something you're going to have to wrestle with personally. I can't necessarily give you a doctrinal out. Um, but this is not the passage. And what's more, for Christians to conflate this passage with their attitude towards homosexuality gives Christians an excuse to not just forbid homosexuality as a, you know, unchristian act, but to start to think of it in terms of something that offends God in itself, and therefore it is up to the Christians to police this act. And that's not what I'm seeing here. Sodom is punished by God not because they are gay. It is because they are sinful on a much more deep, profound level. Like, even if we were to read this as being a sexual crime, and specifically sexual in nature, talking about two consenting gay adults having sex with one another in the context of these people are gang-raping strangers to their city, like, that's a wild difference here. The sin of Sodom well transcends pure homosexuality, pure homosexual anal, anal intercourse. Like, do not conflate the two. Christians do not have a pass by God to go and exterminate anyone who is gay. Not by any extent of the imagination. Not anywhere in the entire Bible. And I would very much like Christians to start treating gay people as though they need to be saved and therefore are in need of love and compassion and Christ-like forbearance, rather than hatred and, you know, accusation and tough love in the form of condemnation and accusation, accusations that they're going to hell. That's not how Jesus works. That's not how the Old Testament works. That's not how this book works. So, yeah. I stress this because I have worked with students who are trying to find a place for Christianity and their homosexuality in their lives. And it is a really tough conversation to have. Like, at the end of the day, I don't think they are compatible, but I am going to listen and help those students as much as I can. I am going to be sympathetic. I am going to encourage them to read their Bible, to talk to God, to, you know, to try and find the answer for themselves. Because if I just tell them there is no way, that just drives them away from the one thing that can save them, or the one thing that I believe as a Christian can save them. They need Jesus as much as anyone needs Jesus. That's what I believe. So consequently, starting a conversation with, you're going to have to stop having sex right now, is not the right way to approach that. They need to be convicted. And if they are, in fact, pursuing a relationship with God and with Christ, they'll come to that conclusion. But they got to have Jesus first. You do not purge a person of their sins so they can receive Jesus. You receive Jesus so you can be purged of your sins. Any Christian who confuses those two is not doing justice to the gospel and may have some major theological hang-ups, may even have and i may even have some question about whether or not they're even christians at that point christianity is not about accusations it is not about moral policing it is about salvation of sinners all sinners 
And just because we're hung up on sexual sin doesn't mean that God is. So with that in mind, yeah. I think it is incredibly obvious that the sin of Sodom has to do with hospitality, not homosexuality. I think that Lot is contrasted against this for thematic purpose. I think that the text is very interested in the issue of proper hospitality. And we might even draw connections to the way that, like, Abraham is apologizing for the cities, asking God over and over again, like, if you find even ten people who are good, will you destroy the city? And God's like, no, I will not. It is also interesting to note that the business of Sodom is caught up with the, the departure of Lot. Like, notice the way that Lot's departure is characterized. Lot is shown to be virtuous, even if he's a little confused in his virtue. He invites the angels in to protect them. He seeks hospitality for them. But when, in fact, the angels respond in kind, offering to save Lot and his family, when Lot appeals to first his daughters, then his sons, he gets a complicated response. And the members of Lot's family frequently fall in Lot's pilgrimage. So when the, the citizens of Sodom are struck blind and the angels are like telling Lot, get your stuff, we're going now, Lot talks to his sons-in-law, like his daughter's husbands, and they won't come. They refuse. Like, they outright say, we don't believe in this God nonsense of yours. Like, presumably they were there when the entire citizenry got struck blind. They're not doing it. So clearly the sinfulness extends here as well. Like, this is not just, you know, sexual. This is not just hospitable. This is a thoroughgoing refusal to hear God even when God is obviously bending over backwards to help you. Um, they reject Lot's offer of survival, even when a miraculous event has transpired. Then when Lot does in fact make it out with just a handful of people, like literally his daughters and his wife, thus proving God's point about how there were not ten, you know, virtuous people in Sodom, even then his wife turns around halfway out, like, to see the destruction that God is reigning on Sodom and is turned into a pillar of salt. Now, we might see this as a bit extreme. I mean, it's hard not to see this as a bit extreme. Like, I think this is a bit extreme. Um, but it is indicative that, again, Lot and his family have this sort of deep tie to Sodom, the city. There is evil in them. Lot, there's evil in Lot insofar as he's like willing to pitch his daughters to, to the mob pretty easily. Um, but also there is sin in Lot's daughters insofar as they take it upon themselves to impregnate themselves by Lot, their father, which is just a giant mess. Um, but there is also sin in Lot's wife insofar as she turns back, seems to miss, regrets having to leave this city. God's purging fire here is absolute. Just like we saw with the flood, God can be pushed too far, and he has in the case of Sodom. We may have trouble pinning down exactly what the sin of Sodom was, but what is emphasized here in this text is that it is extreme, it is pervasive, and it is contagious. That's why it needs to be purged. That's why God has to destroy it. Because even a relatively upstanding guy like Lot, his entire family is falling away to this corruption, to this destructive evil that God is now wiping from the face of the earth. 
presumably that would have corrupted Abram and Abraham as well if left alone for too long. Abraham seeks mercy for the people who have not been corrupted. But what God is emphasizing in his conversation with Abraham is that none of them have escaped. Even Lot is corrupt. And while God does spare Lot, offers like offers mercy to many of Lot's family, many of them just flat out turn it down. God is well within his rights here. As much as you will hear people talk about God's wrath in the Old Testament, how God is destructive, notice that there is a purpose, and the text is emphasizing that. This evil is dangerous. It is making the world worse. God flooded the world once because it had gone so far into that evil. God's holiness wants this place to be better, wants to fix anyone who is even close to being redeemed. But there are limits, and some have gone too far. Sodom is clearly an example of that. And Sodom's reach touches every part of Lot's family and every part of Lot's life. So, that's, there was, that's my take on the, the whole story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, we who read this as homosexuality are, are missing the point entirely. A closer read is necessary. There is something to be learned from this passage, for sure. But it is not just that gay people are evil. Nor is it that gayness alone has the same sort of corrupting evil influence that Sodom does here. The emphasis on Sodom's crime is that it is multifarious. It is beyond any one sin. So, no. This does not give Christians license to persecute and, you know make the miserable the lives of gay people um again we'll talk about it when we get to more concrete evidence that god is not on board with homosexuality we'll talk about that in its context um but this is not it uh not in the original like mosaic or you know even in the jedp kind of approach like I, that's foreign to the text read into it by people who are extremely touchy about this stuff um, too touchy, in fact. Like, who they are... How do I put this? In the pursuit of holiness, they forget God's mercy and forgiveness and sort of unnecessarily prioritize sexual sin where God himself does not, as we'll see later on. Sex is frequently regulated by God. We'll talk about it when it is. But it is, I think, a fairly low priority to God. Um, it is, I think, outranked by compassion, um, greed, or like, how do I put this? Sexual sin is outranked by sins of greed and pride. God tends to punish them more harshly. A lack of compassion will be more partially punished than sexual sin. As much as the sexual sin is flashy, it is obvious, as much as God does occasionally offer some pretty stirring punishments for it, again, when it comes to what do the prophets keep insisting upon, what are most of the Levitical laws dealing with, they tend to be more oriented around disobeying God's orders, i.e. pride or idolatry, lack of compassion for your neighbor, and, you know, again, greed, like 
just taking stuff for yourself to the exclusion of others. God tends to look on that very, very dimly. Um, but we'll talk about that more when we get to it. For next time, we're going to finish Genesis. Um, I know that we had yet another two and a half hour lecture because, again, we had a lot to talk about. Um, but the story of Joseph is pretty straightforward, and I'm hoping that we will be able to blow through it quite a bit or quite easily. Uh, the story of Jacob is actually the one that I want to talk about more. Like, that is another one of those just weird, messy, biblical, patriarchal stories that really needs a lot of unpacking in order to properly understand. Um, so for next time, we're going to look at the the story of Isaac. We're going to look at the uh, talk about the rise and ultimate death of Jacob, and we're going to talk about the self-contained Joseph narrative that very much closes out the book of Genesis. Um, so next time, Genesis 23 to 49. We'll read the rest of the book, and then... After next week, we'll be on to bigger and better things with Exodus and beyond. Um, I look forward to talking about them with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the Internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year, um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.